This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode. Got a great guest for us today. This guy's been in the industry a long time, lots of knowledge, you know, owner-operator experience, expert on sales, national speaker, national author, uh, one of the faces of the industry, I, I, I've read several of his articles in MH Insider and some other magazines before I actually realized this is the same guy I was talking to at one point, but uh, excited to have him on. Please welcome my guest, Ken Corbin. Ken, thanks for coming on. Ferd, it's my pleasure to join you. I, I'm really, really looking forward to working with you on this podcast. Me too, man. Me too. Well, most of my guests, I say, tell, about, tell us about yourself because nobody knows who you are. But in their case, people probably know, know you, but... In case they don't, maybe give us a little bit more on your background and, and how, how you've kind of worked throughout the years in the MH industry. Sure. I started uh, actually about 40 years ago, started in the business, uh, began working with a group out of California uh, that was at that point in time, Clayton Williams and Sherwood, no relation to Jim Clayton. They were the largest park owners in the country. And they had a number of communities from California, Arizona, Texas, uh, Georgia, and then down into to Florida. And uh, they had recruited me because I had done such a good job in actual sales of homes on a retail basis. And I began working with them and going across the country where they had a number of parks that had uh, large vacancies. I set up retail operations and absolutely fell in love with the community end of the business. And since then have owned retail operations, have been involved with obviously uh, communities as well and uh, continue to do that now. I've uh, sold all my businesses, now do training and consulting. Uh, a lot with park owners, uh, developers, uh, some retailers, as well as working with uh, all the major state associations uh, across the country. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to now work in uh, every one of the uh, 48 continental United States, wow. and uh, as well as actually doing a little bit of work up in Canada. Um, one day, hope to do some work in, in Hawaii because there's actually a few homes in Hawaii, but that would be a great job. And yeah. you and I, you and I, Ferd, we'll go out there together. We'll make it a JV on that. That's one. a good idea. Yeah, you tell them they need a lawyer, and we can get this to be an all expense paid vacation. There uh, you go. That'd be great. Well, I, I'm I'm particularly interested today to hear more about the sales training that you do because I, I know some of my clients have told me they use you and have been have been very impressed with uh, your your sales training and your just your whole professionalism of yeah, the, the culture you bring to the process. So uh, not to give away all your secret sauce, but if you can share some tips and, and walk us through what that process looks like, I think that'd be really helpful for our audience. Well, I, I think to begin with, when we think about communities that are looking to, to fill spaces, and I, I always talk about one of the keys is I wanna help someone to sell more homes, fill more spaces. I look at what I call the, uh, the three Ps, which are, are people, process and promotion. Those are the three key elements that any owner operator should be looking at. And, and then we got to look at them in chronological order of importance. Now, the least important in, 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 my, in my perspective is promotion. Uh, that's one of the simplest things to do. And we'll talk about promotion in a little bit. 
Uh, the second most important thing are the people. And then finally, the process. Uh, the thing that, that we have to inherently understand and learn is that people don't run communities. Processes run communities. And what people do, as you well know, Ferg, is people run the process. So the, the first thing that I like to see in place is a consistent, well understood, well thought out and regimented process for communities to operate at maximum efficiency. If we can do that, we can plug in as needed the people. Um, as you mentioned, I, I've got clients of you know, joint clients that you have and, and, and I had, and, and, and that's been a, a, a big thing for them to understand. And one of the other pieces, of course, we're going to add in is product. Uh, sure. Product product today is, has become uh, a real challenge because of, of all the manufacturers that are at this point in time, they're, they're way behind in production. You know, the newest concern is resin because of the storms that hit the Southeast. So that's, that is in addition to the COVID crisis, to, to lumber issues. Hell, there's drywall, there's insulation. If I can jump in, there's a, that brings up the fifth P, right? And it's price. Because exactly, price. The impacts and, of what you can sell, how you can move it, is definitely one of the, the, key, the key factors here. Exactly. And, 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 and the hardest thing today is to, is to determine how we're going to price a product. I had a client call me the other evening and he said, my goodness, I ordered a home a month ago. And that same home, that single section home that I ordered a month ago that I priced out to people is now coming offline and the home is $4,000 more than I priced it a month ago. What do I do? And I said, you just got to be careful. You, you don't want to go too premature on your pricing, not knowing as volatile as it is today. And to be very honest with you, based on the futures, I see that volatility probably extending through, believe it or not, the end of summer. So I agree. And I've, I've been talking to me. I'm waiting on two emails back from manufacturers now. And I'm like, I bought 25 homes from one sales rep last year. And I was like, hey, can I get a home? He said, Bird, I got guys that are making a hundred per order and I can't get them a home. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. You know, it's just, it's the supply chain challenges. Um, and then the pricing, I, I hear the last home I just sold that happened to it was, this home was in, in process for like three or four months and the price went up like 6,000 bucks. Right. And I'd already, I'd already had a deal with the customer and they already been approved by the banks. I'm like, I had to eat $6,000. So it's like I can, and but if I, but I, you know, the other thing with pricing is you gotta, you gotta price your market. If I, if I price these homes at their new cost, I can't sell them for that. So now I just, we just bought a park recently. We budgeted five thousand dollars a eat from loss on every single sale. And that's almost what you have to do today. Which and means raising, to... more, raising more capital. But I mean, it's still, it's still worth it in the long run to get the valuation of the infill lots. But mm -hmm. um, that's not a fun way to do business. Losing five thousand a sale, but you know, it's a calculated what? decision. One of the things that I'm recommending to, to clients today is go ahead and automatically increase your price by 5%. And then as you see the new increases, so you're ahead of the ball game. And as the new increases are coming in, you just continue to increase and let your customers know, you know, this is, this is as volatile as it's going to be for the next number of months. Again, I'm thinking through the end of summer and hopefully, hopefully if, if the COVID thing can get under control, which we're all hoping for, 
that that'll be somewhat of a blessing, but it's it's going to be a challenge for the for a time to come. Certainly, I know that that's that's obviously one key area of the forecasting for the for the industry. What, what are what else you what are your other views? And I want to get back to your your P, three P's here too in a minute. But sure, while we're on this on this lane, um, what do, what do you see macro level for the industry? I mean, obviously, there's a ton of new players, ton of new capital, cap rates yeah. be compressing. Um, what, what are your views on the you know, next one, two, five years in industry? Well, I think number one, we're going to see a uh, continued uh, growth internally. Uh, there's not going to be as many new communities as we would like to see. Uh, the ones that are going to come about, and we're beginning to see this in certain pockets across the country, where the communities that are being built today are more of the lifestyle type communities being geared more towards uh, not, I, we won't call them seniors, but we'll call them empty nesters, where the people are saying, you know, maybe they're still working, they want a nice home, uh, they want a garage. We're seeing a big play on garages, and we're seeing uh, nicer, instead of single section homes, we're seeing more and more of, of the double wides of the sectional homes. Sure. And I think as as that and, and we we talked about a couple of clients of mine, that's been a recent trend that I've told them instead of just focusing on that typical inexpensive, as cheap as you can get three bedroom, two bath, 14 by 70 or 16 by 80, start marketing uh, the double wides or sectional homes and watch what happens. And now their phones and their social media is blowing up for people wanting that lifestyle. So, yeah, I see a, a, a tremendous increase in activity. I, I agree with you on the cap rates. Those are going to continue to be compressed. But if we do a good job in working with our governmental agencies and we're able to build some new communities, I see small subdivisions. I see condo type communities, uh, more and more empty nesters, uh, the millennials, uh, the the boomers, you know, the boomers are aging. Healthcare is having us as you know live longer, and you know we don't want that big house. No, we don't want the big house anymore. Maybe we want a home in the upper Midwest and one down in Arizona or down in Florida. And so, yeah, it's it's a huge opportunity. The mom and pops, Ferd, there's fewer and fewer of those. We're seeing more and more of the corporate. We're seeing the acquisitions. We're seeing the young people coming in. Uh, Biggest concern I see, though, is don't become too aggressive. You become too aggressive, and I think you'll begin to see some states and governmental agencies implement some rent controls. And we've got to be we've got to be cognizant of that. Yeah, I'm, I have some similar views on that. I mean, we, we we're not that aggressive on our initial rent raises, but we're in some markets where the guys are, and I'm like, you're going to ruin it forever for everybody. This is in De, one of them is in Des Moines, and one group oh, sure. increased the rent by. I think it went from like 250 to 600 overnight lot rent. It's just like you, all you're doing is at, is putting a target on your back. And you know what's wrong with you know a reasonable rent raise? Just do it every year, you know. And yeah, yeah, that's that's a, a definitely a concern of mine. So I mean, I, I know like you, I, I watch it, that watch for that stuff and listen to it best I can. Um, the positive news on that I think is Illinois and Iowa have both been trying to been talking about rent control for quite some time mm -hmm. and has gone anywhere now. Federally, there's a more progressive White House, and that's those sort of things are going to get more attention, I think. But uh, obviously, rent control is typically done at the local level. 
And, and it's frankly, it's failed in every where it's been tried in the history of mankind as to achieve its stated objectives. So hopefully sensible minds will realize rent control is, uh, has unintended consequences, if you will, and that'll, and that'll keep it out. But um, yeah, I'm with you that being aggressive on rent, rent increases is, is a short is a short term sugar rush, but it's, it's bad long term for the industry in general. Well, well you know, one thing I, I do see, and I, I don't think the residents mind so much the, the rental increases. And, and I've got some clients that have done a really good job in going in and starting to do some great work aesthetically at the communities. So the residents can see, hey, you know, they're serious about helping to increase the value of our homes. So by increasing the value of our community, by making those improvements, I don't mind paying a little bit more rent. But as a new owner coming in and just haphazardly raising rents with no justification whatsoever, as far as they're concerned, you know, they, they're not concerned about cap rates. They want to know, you know, how much is my rent going to be not next month, but a year from now? And if you're going to be aggressive, you know, what am I going to do? I might try to find another place to move to. So yeah, show the intent, especially the people that are coming in the large groups, show the intent to your, to your residents that you're serious about improving not only the, the value of the community, but subsequently the value of their home. And those subtle, I'll use the subtle increases are going to be fine and they'll totally understand and they'll accept it and they'll expect it at the same time. Yeah, I agree completely. Good way to do it. Well, I want, to, I want to get back to your, you were talking about the, the three P's that we've mm -hmm. added to five. I don't know if we'll get to six or seven, but I, at least the three. Tell us, I, I agree with your comment on the process. And um, the thing I like about having good processes and systems is it makes people replaceable. And I don't mean mm -hmm. that in the in the rude way or don't, don't care for my staff. But when you have, back when I was at Jackson County, I had about 75 staff. And I remember one guy, he was irreplaceable. And this guy could hold as a barrel. And he's like, no, I'm the only one. I'm the only one that knows how to do this. And it was IT related. So it was really important. And he's like, I don't want to train anybody else. And I said, no, I'm not going to let that happen. Because if you get hit by a bus, we're all screwed. I said, sure. you can't do that. I said, and I'm not going to let you hold me hostage every time you ask for a raise. If they get so I said, here's what you got to do, buddy, is you need to train your replacement in the next mm -hmm. 60 days or I'm going to fire you. I'm going to fire you on my timeline as opposed to during billing season or taxi where you're going to really stick us. But I, I tell us I'm not threatening. You. I don't want to make you worth less. I want you to have trained other people so that you can use your intellect to go do bigger, better, higher tasks. I'm not trying to get rid of you. And in getting that through his head, it took some time. But ultimately, it's like this is how it's better for the organization. But that was just one example of, you know, making the people less important than the process. And then you've described it. You have processes the most because people can fit into the the pyramid, if you will, and, and and just you know, the military is really good at this. If yeah. if somebody gets shot, the next guy picks up the rifle and, and knows what to do. There's the, the person is not as important as the mission, as the process. I I I could not agree with you, Martha. That is absolutely on track. You know, we always have to look at it from my perspective. It's not a question of if someone's going to be leaving you as an employee. It's a question of when. So just accept the fact they are going to leave because if they become a great manager for you, there's going to be a lot of people knocking at their door, trying to steal them away from you. 
And they're going to possibly consider the grass is green around the other side. Now, if they do leave, hopefully they'll come back. But when they leave, you have to be prepared and have someone in your back pocket that you can, as you mentioned, simply plug in and continue to continue your operations. Of course, there's going to be a few bumps in the road. But sure. if you have those processes in place, you'll be great. Uh, we'll talk about product, if you'd like, a little bit. Um, yeah. Because product, the mix is a product. And, and what I try to do is when I'm working with a community, I say, okay, what are you trying to attract? My opinion is when it comes to the inexpensive homes, no matter how cheap you want to go, and I'll use the word cheap, there is going to be someone out there that's going to be advertising that exact same home cheaper than you are. So if you want to go the cheap route, there's a couple of things you have to take into consideration. Number one is the people that you're going to be attracting. If you uh, uh, go after that low end home buyer, you're going to get that type of buyer, sure. that type of buyer that's going to be harder to get financing, uh, more difficult for them to secure their down payment. You're going to have a heck of a time getting all the various loan conditions put together. And when you finally get them in the home, they're going to spend all their money for the down payment. They're going to be living paycheck to paycheck. And you're going to have probably some issues down the road for, with them paying their rents, especially as we begin to increase our rents. So we I'm, have I'm coming up with I'm coming up with a list of people that I'm that are that, that are in my communities that fit this description based on that. Oh, yeah. people. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're like, everything you're saying is, is, is very wise. Yeah. Those people, are, I, I say, are basically one paycheck away from being homeless. And that's what they are. The majority of our residents in your typical blue collar community are living from paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, if we continue to raise the rents, what we have to do, and there's no question, we have to do that if we're going to continue to offer the services and, and make our, our intrinsic value continue to rise, we have to do that. So right. uh, one of the things that I'm really focusing on nowadays is, is telling people, begin to upgrade your community, buy a little bit better home. So instead of having that, that one large slice of the pie that everybody's going after, that inexpensive, the inexpensive, lower-priced, entry-level home. Go for that smaller slice of the pie that nobody's going after. I begin to attract that better buyer. Then take that home that you're bringing in and make it absolutely perfect. You and I, Ferd, and, and, and our viewers and our listeners, you know, we go to manufactured home shows. And I work with a lot of manufacturers. The typical manufacturer is going to spend just under $10,000 decoring and staging a single wide mobile home or manufactured home at a home show. They're going to do fifteen dollars to $18,000 on a nice sectional home. And what do we do? We go, to these, we go to these home shows. We see these incredible homes. And then we bring them in. Maybe we plug them in and we show a couple lights. We show just terrible, if any, furniture. Um, all the stickers are still on all the appliances. You go to open up the, the refrigerator door, and that's the first thing people are going to do. They want to open up the refrigerator door, and it's still taped shut. You know, they open up the, <laughs> no, they, they, I see this all the time. Really? You open up the dishwasher, 
and all the packing material is in there. Um, I would much rather have a community take one or two homes that they have brought in and make them absolutely perfect. Heat them in the winter, cool them in the summer, uh, stage them with, with a, a single switch. So when you're going up to the home, if, if you don't have the air on, you have a switch at the deck, not fiberglass steps, but at a deck, you flick that switch on and all the lights come on in the home, the fans are going. So when you walk in that first impression that potential homeowner is seeing is something warm, inviting and friendly. And then when you leave the home, just hit that switch and all the main lights and fans go off. It's, it's just one of the little things that we look at, but I cannot stress the importances of making your, you'll get more value. You'll obviously get more value and you'll be able to get a better price. And most importantly, you're going to be attracting a better homeowner. So great, great, great tips for sure. One, one additional thing I'll mention, my, my dad was a realtor. One thing he would do and that we've trained our sales staff to do is, as, as you've, you've described the home being perfect upon entry, is we will, before we walk in the home, we will tell them about a key feature of the home to even pump it up like, oh, wait till you see the master bath in this place. It's got a jacuzzi tub like you've never seen. And then you walk in and then they see that they see the jacuzzi tub. And they're like, it's it's just like you said, dream. And then and then on the way out, we say, instead of saying, do you like it? Then they go, or what do you? It's like you ask your kids, you know, how was school? Fine, you know, like uh-huh. no. You ask them, don't answer, don't ask yes or no questions. You want to be a good conversationalist. So you ask them, tell me what your favorite features were about this home. Tell me what could tell me how what about this home makes you feel like you can bring your family here. Things like that. And then they they start to uh, glorify in their mind, like well. My husband and I would love to have the, the extra bathroom and the extra the double sink or, oh, I can see my kids playing in that laundry room, playing in that playroom, et cetera. Um, so that, to, that's a little before and after we do, uh, in addition to trying to get it, get up the homes prepped and primed as far as uh, staging and everything like that. Let me let me add something to that. Uh, there's a uh, and, and you mentioned something about closed probe, you know. Uh, did you, like, you tell a child, you know, clean your room and I never want to see it dirty again, you know, or a customer comes in, you say, what are you looking for? Single white or double white? How many bedrooms? How many baths? You know, they're you're using all these closed probes. What I stress to clients is you're going to find out, I'm going to grab a notebook here. What they do is they're going to have a customer walk in the door and they grab the closest notebook or legal pad and they flip to the next open page, right? Hmm. Uh, take, a, take a clipboard. I use what is called a customer specification sheet. And I show the customers and I say, this is a customer specification sheet. What it's intended is to help me, to help you find the perfect home that you and your family can fall in love with. And, and I'm going to be writing things down as we're talking. But the first question I'm going to ask you is really simple. Describe your dream home and leave that open probe hanging out and they'll begin to talk to you. Another great question is, tell me what you're trying to accomplish. And they'll begin to tell you, you know, we're in a, we're in a big house now, we're thinking about downsizing, we wanna cut the utility bills or we're in a smaller home and we need a bigger home and we wanna be in a good school district. And you begin to just listen 
to what they're saying and you're writing everything down just like you told them you were going to do because no one else that they've talked to has taken that keen and sincere interest in what they're trying to accomplish in describing what they want in their dream home. You do that for, and I can assure you, uh, price will still be important, but not nearly as important as it would have been had you not taken the interest in trying to help them. That's, that's great stuff. I mean, I think what, which, what, what it sounds like you're describing is being a good listener. And Absolutely. people, everybody loves talking about themselves, their story, their views, their, and, and you're giving them that opportunity. And as a result, you're building rapport. Two other uh, quick things I can tell you that I, that I recommend is, uh, of course, we try to create what is called obligation. And that starts with a telephone call. You'll have frequently uh, a customer will call a community and say, well, I, I want to come by, you know, you'll make an appointment. One thing that a, a client of mine does this, they say, great, we're going to set you up a time. What day? Friday, Saturday. Great. Morning or afternoon. Afternoon. Terrific. Uh, what time in the afternoon? I have one and I have three available. They give you a specific time. And the last thing you say to them is, you know, I want to make sure that everybody knows when you're arriving, what type of car do you drive? Uh, well, I, I drive a, a Ford Explorer. Okay. Uh, may I ask what color it is? So I know when you arrive that you're here. Oh, it's, it's red. Great. John and Mary, I got you down for Saturday at two o'clock. You'll be arriving in your red Ford Explorer. It's just a little thing that they remember that you asked. And when you pull up, you say, oh, John and Mary, I see you drove up in your Ford Explorer. An another small little thing is uh, asking them before you hang up, um, what type of soft drink or soda do you like? Uh, well, I would maybe like Cokes. And the reason I'm asking is I'm going to the store and I've got to do some shopping. I'm going to get some soft drinks. And you're going to, you like Coke? Great. I'll pick up a couple of Cokes. And if you don't mind, I'll bring them along. Is it regular Coke or Diet Coke? Well, she likes diet. I like regular. Great. I'll get one of each. It's just the small things that you're doing to differentiate yourself from your competing communities down the road. That's great. That's great stuff, Ken. That reminds me, I was telling my team yesterday, um, some people on the team have said things always like we to get the big things right. We all have little things that fall through the cracks. Mm -hmm. And I said, I kind of disagree with that. And I, I, I got it from John Wooden, you know, the all time great sure. basketball coach. And you know, he had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Walton, all these superstars right. on his team. And they'd won the national title the year before. They're going to win the national title this year. And you know what he did every single year, the first thing in the first practice? Mm -hmm. Taught them how to tie their shoes. Taught them how to put their socks on and tie their and shoes. And their socks on, yeah. And he said, it's a little thing, but he taught them how to put the socks on just right in a certain way so they didn't get friction and they didn't rub so you can get blisters. Because that because if you get blisters and you have to miss a game or miss a couple of plays or you're, you're worried about your foot instead of your free throw, it's going to impact a big thing. That's the big free throw at the end of the game. So he said, if you, if you do the little things perfect, first time, every time, the big things will kind of fall in place too. And it's you're describing some of these the little things the little things build rapport, little things set you apart. And, and, the, and the big thing is the sale. And the big thing is the infill. Yeah, and and John the big Wooden, thing for the customer is their dream home. 
John Wooden used to say, little things make big things happen. That was one of his favorite sayings. And and uh, his pyramid of success. I, I got I, it right over there. I can see oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, anybody listening or watching this, this program, Ferd and I will strongly recommend that you read and listen anything you can get on John Wooden because he wasn't just a great basketball coach. He did a lot of training and and speaking and talking to business leaders around the world, as you mentioned. Yeah, he's a great guy. Um, Let's talk about dress a little bit, if you don't mind. Uh, One thing I I really stress is the use of a name tag. I don't care if you're wearing, you know, jeans. And if you are wearing jeans, uh, clean jeans, nothing fried, nothing tattered. Um, But wear a name tag. And then people always say, well, okay, what should it say? Basically, you want your first name very large. So in my case, I might have it Ken and under the bottom, maybe ABC community, but Ken. And then people say, well, where does a name tag go? And and I ask people and they'll say, well, it goes right here, you know, over my heart. No, your name tag goes on the opposite side because you're already shaking your head because you know that in, in, in our hemisphere, we shake hands, and as we shake hands with our right hand, we move in, and what happens is it's easier for that name tag to be seen. It's A name tag is important. It's one less thing the customer has to think about because you're generally going to say your name one time. You're going to say, hey, I'm Ferd Neiman, or I'm Ken Corbett. They may want to ask you a question after that, and maybe they're used to using your name, and they can't remember who the heck you are. So all that does is a simple reminder. Plus, when you do your follow-up with them, you'll continue to not only use their name, but they'll remember what your name is as well. So, you know, don't overdress. Certainly don't underdress. The common thing that I hear is, I want to dress just like my customer. No, you want to dress basically just one step up. I'm not asking you to wear, you know, a, a long sleeve dress shirt and khaki pants and you don't want to look like Jim Harbaugh with your khaki pants from the University of Michigan or, or you don't want to have you, you can wear tennis shoes make sure they're clean they're neat you know but just look somewhat professional wear a nice name tag keep the office looking good make it user friendly and you'll do just fine but keep those processes in place that's that's great stuff and I mean, one thing that I want to add, if you touched on it briefly, there is uh, say their name. Yeah. Um, because no, this, I think in every language, there's been some studies that the, the number one favorite word in, in your language is your first name. Absolutely. And it's something psychologically, but you say, hey, Ken, nice to see you. Ken, what is, you look at? What is your dream home, Ken? And you can repeat their name three times in the first 30 seconds. Don't make it awkward, but kind of do it, you know, you know sub- subliminally almost. And they like you more. Sure. And then you all, and you also were training yourself to remember their name. I took a memory class at one point, um, and that was one of the tips: was just, you know, say their name three times. And if it's a yeah. complicated name, ask them to spell it. You sure. know, and then you you inherently can you know remember it better. And then and later, I do that all. I do like at a restaurant with listen to the waiter or waitress, and their name is Ken. Say, hey, thanks again, Ken. Hey, Ken, can I get some more water? Or can I get some salt? And they're like, and they're kind of like. And it's just dignity, frankly, treating them with dignity, like, you know, because no, so many people don't care. They just, oh, it's just a waiter. You know, his job is to serve me. But if you treat them better, 
they feel better, they do better, right? And it's the same thing goes, it's just, it's just in all sales. It's all, frankly, it's in all interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. I, got, I got to tell you the story you mentioned about the waiter. Uh, most people don't know what the acronym for TIP is when you're giving your TIP. TIP stands for to ensure promptness. My mentor years ago told me this, and I've done it. He said, next time you go to a restaurant, kind of determine how much your bill is going to be. And when they come, and the, when the waiter or the waitress comes and, and take your order, you say, you know, I don't know if you would, the word tip is actually an acronym. And you say, you know, that means to ensure promptness. Now, I anticipate my bill is going to be about $30. And I feel what if I get really good service, I'm going to pay a 20% tip. So if you don't mind, Bill, I say your name is Bill. Bill, I'm going to pay you that 20% right now. Is that okay? Yeah. You pay them up front that 20%. And I guarantee you, for you're going to have the best service, better than anybody else that that waiter or waitress is serving tables. That's great. That's great. I've never, I've great never I didn't know that's what tips do. I've never heard that's any what of it that. stands so. for to ensure promptness. My mentor, Summers White, taught me that years and years ago. And I've used it and it works. That's great. Great. Ken, this is lots of good information. Uh, before we part, what other, any got any other tips or tricks or, or maybe a horror story to people, help people avoid uh, that we can share with the audience before we jump? Well, don't overbuy your product, even though product right now is, uh, is hard to get. When I say overbuy, don't buy nine or 10 of the exact same home. Whatever you do, mix match your homes, mix your colors. You never truly will absolutely know what your home buyers are going to be looking for to buy. So mix up two bedrooms, three bedrooms. Uh, you can actually see about flipping some floor plans around. Definitely on the outside, talk about colors, elevations, the outside of the homes. Do a lot of homes with what we call coach lights. In the front of the homes, have two lights, one on each side of that front window. And I strongly recommend that you consider leaving those lights on at night. Some people are using solar spots down from the ground that come on at dusk and will shine up to the front window. It's just something nice. Simple signage. Uh, don't do anything complicated. When I say simple, you know, you don't need to put slogans on your signage. A, a sign is intended to let people know for, that you've arrived. When you go to a McDonald's or a Dollar General, it doesn't say McDonald's, www.mcdonalds.com, and then list their phone number. There's the sign for McDonald's. So keep your signage simple. It just lets them know that you've arrived. And then final thing I would strongly recommend, name your models. Put names on them, cutesy names that are unique to your market, to your area, our area, rather than an a three W X RL, you know, just don't use a standard. Use something unique to name the houses that people can remember. That's you know, my dad just told me that I didn't. I've never done that honestly. And my dad just bought some homes from a, a dealer, some used homes, and then they put, I think they put a, a woman's name on all of them, like on that sure. movie Bonus Like oh, I liked the Eleanor, you know, I liked the Darling, you know, Darla, you know, and then because you can remember them. Yeah. I, I I know it's number 117 long, but nobody else yeah. knows that's the street name and the number. But uh. if, you're, if your listeners are in the South or the Southeast, uh, name some of your models after racetracks, like the Darlington or the Pocono. 
because our the buyers and depending on your market that love race that love NASCAR, you don't name it after a driver because they have this thing about oh, certain yes. drivers. But <laughs> oh, racetracks yeah. are fine. You know, you can call it the Charlotte. You know, whatever. Just uh, you're, unique I've, names I've never, that people can. Yeah, that that's good. I've, I've never really been a, a race fan. Uh, I went to one neither am I. race neither. Kansas Speedway with my dad, but I had a friend who was a big. I think it was Kurt Busch, big Kurt yeah. Busch fan. And, and Kurt Busch, my friend used to drink beer. He used to drink, I want to say it was, uh, I want to say Michelob, Ulta or something, Michelob. But Kurt Busch ended up getting sponsored by Miller Lite. Yeah. He literally just said, well, I'm drinking Miller Lite now. I'm like, you switched the beer you've been drinking for years because oh your, your driver's got a different sponsorship? He's like, well, yeah. I'm like, wow, you got really or you really are uh, pumped up about this guy. So anyway, yeah, you're, that's a great idea though to associate with races and not race tracks and not race car drivers. Yeah, it's small. Thing. All right, Ken. Hey, Ken, before we part, where can people find you? How can they reach you after this? Well, uh, real simple. Uh, my website is quite simple. It's call, C-A-L-L, KenCorbin.com. Also on there, they can see uh, the link to the Manufactured Home Show. And of course, Ferd, you've been on my podcast. I have over 70 interviews that we've done from people in the industry, from suppliers, manufacturers, community owners, retailers, lenders, and so on. Uh, you can also call me. Uh, my number is 740-819-3096. Would love to talk to any of your listeners to hear any suggestions, comments, questions. Be happy to help them in any way that I can. All right. Thanks, Ken. appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Bye now. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.